And I want to thank everybody for being here. And I'm going to start off by sharing my screen and the slides that I have, um, because uh, we are going to function. We are going to work through slides. Excellent. And um, I'm still going to admit there's a few more people coming in. And I want to start off, like, like always, um, just by thanking you all for being here, by thanking you all for learning uh, with me and preparing for Pesach together with me. And um, I saw that uh, Paul was here for a second. Uh, this shir, this class, this uh, talk is sponsored, lovingly dedicated in honor of our parents who created wonderful memories through all the years of celebrating Pesach. And I really want to thank Paul and Dina Berger um, for, uh, for their friendship. Um, for being uh, my friends, um, people I've come to admire very much, uh, people who do a lot for this community, for our school in particular, um, and also people I think uh, support Torah and Stanford in a very meaningful, uh, special way. So, uh, so Paul and Dina, um, thank you for sponsoring and for dedicating our class and our learning this evening. Um, Pathways in Jewish Thought, uh, before we get started, I want to uh, express what the goal of this is. The goal here is to talk about two themes. There are many themes of Pesach, of the holiday of Passover. There are many themes for us to talk about. I want to focus on two themes tonight. Each of the themes on their own could be a series of shirim, a series of classes. Um, but I think that maybe just by touching upon them and by looking at them at the surface, really, and trying to scratch a little bit beyond that, that we'll get a real sense of what Pesach is all about. Pesach has a multiplicity of meanings, like every Jewish holiday. I say often to people that one of the most amazing parts of being a Jew is the miracle of the Jewish calendar, the way that the rhythms of the calendar work throughout the year. You start with this intensity as the seasons end, as fall turns to winter with the high holidays, and we experience what Rav Shagar called the death of time. The leaves start to wither and die. The leaves that are, uh, are green turn to brown, and they wither with the wind, they fall off, and uh, we experience uh, the pangs of our own mortality as we stand before God on the high holidays. And then we move into winter, and in winter we have the light of Hanukkah as that first flicker, that first glow, that, uh, that we still have holidays, we still have miracles that are present in our lives, despite how dark it might be outside and how cold it might be outside. And then following that, we enter into a time uh, where Purim is around the corner. But before Purim, we celebrate the return of life to the world, the first budding of the trees in Tubishvat. And then Purim comes and it talks to us about finding God within nature, within the natural world, finding God within, uh, in between the lines of our existence. Uh, of course, God is not mentioned in the Megillah. And we have to go out and search for Hamelech to find the king within that story in mundane existence. And then as, and, and, and I'm just noticing now, if you have crocuses in your front uh, lawn, so you're noticing now the crocuses are just starting to come up from the ground. The first flowers opened up. They even withstood a snowstorm last week. And you get the sense of life returning to the world. And just as that begins, we have Chag Aviv. We have, we have Pesach that comes. And Pesach is the holiday of redemption, which is going to be our first theme. But it's my belief that Jewish education, the point of learning, is that the deeper our knowledge is about the holidays, about the moadim uzumanim, about the things that we do, about the mitzvot that we perform, the more meaningful and the more enjoyable they become to us. I, I always like to use the metaphor that 
um, I'm not such a fine schmecker, but, uh, but we do enjoy wine on Shabbos and uh, maybe a glass during the week. And when you first drink wine without reading or knowing anything about it, so it's just another drink. Maybe, uh, maybe you might be able to tell, I don't know, the difference between a good or a bad wine. But then when you open up a book and you learn about it, maybe you take a course if you're a wine drinker. And uh, Pesach is a holiday for wine drinkers. When you take a course and you understand the difference between uh, the different varietals and the different kinds of wine production and what years are significant and what to look for when you're tasting and, and how, to, how to drink mindfully and slowly, all of a sudden the experience of drinking a glass of wine becomes elevated to something transcendent. And Lahavdil, uh, to distinguish between that activity and the activity of serving God, the same is true when we serve God through the mitzvot, when we serve God through, um, when we serve God through, through, through acts, of, acts of Jewish observance, like the holidays. And I'm just remembering now that I forgot to record, as uh, some people had asked. Okay, um, now you have to like, click something on your screens. So without any further ado, let's jump into it and let's learn uh, Pathways in Jewish Thought on Pesach, two themes on the Festival of Freedom. The first theme that I want to talk about is Pesach is a time of redemption. Pesach, of course, in the Torah has different names. It's Chaga Pesach, and it's also Zman Chiruseinu, and it is, um, it's a duality. We recognize God for passing over our house, and God res- recognizes us for, for bringing the Karban Pesach and for being his nation that emerged into the desert with him. As the Navi says, the Prophet says, Like, Without knowing what was ahead of us, we followed God into the desert. And even slavery with its predictability can offer some cold comfort. But going out into the desert, following an unknown God and an unknown leader, even after all of the miracles that were performed in Mitzrayim, is something uncertain. And Pesach is the time of redemption. And I want to start off with a quote from the first Ashkenazic chief rabbi of the land of Israel, Rabbi Avram Yitzchak HaKohen Kuk. Rav Kuk, whose picture is... Right, uh, he's looking down on me right now. It's one of those pictures where the eyes follow you across the room. Ruf Cook was reported to have embroidered on his matzah cover the following phrase. He said, The exodus of Jews from Egypt will always be the springtime of the entire world. Just as the natural world is starting, Aviv Igiya Pesach Ba, I heard our first and second graders singing today in school at their model Seder. Just as the natural world comes to life, so we experience the renaissance of the Jewish people as our nation had its first birth, its first inception in the Exodus, but also every single year we go through these moments again and again and again. And I would be remiss if not to mention the statement of Rabbi Yehuda of Prague, the Maharal, the Maharal, one of the greatest Jewish thinkers of all of history in 16th century Prague, the Maharal told us, he said that when we tell ourselves that we are remembering, that we're, that we're harking back to the Exodus, it's not enough to just engage in active memory, but we have to experience this as if it's happening to us now at this very moment, that we ourselves are leaving Egypt, that we ourselves are experiencing redemption. Now, of course, Baruch Hashem, thank God, we're not enslaved at least not in a uh, physical sense. And we don't, uh, we don't engage in the Sisyphusian backbreaking work of building cities that fell into the ground the second that the bricks were laid. But to be sure, all of us do seek a kind of redemption in our own lives, whether it's an addiction of sorts, whether it is a certain pattern of behavior, whether it is a certain relationship that is dragging us down 
Whatever it is, is that redemption can be a theme that is writ large, that we can all find in this time, a time that is pregnant, a part of the year that is rife with meaning for us to be able to experience a personal redemption. So Pesach is indeed a time of redemption, not just for ourselves, but for the entire world. I thought that it was uh, apropos that, uh, you know, five, six years ago, maybe it was even longer, but when they talked about in the Arab world, when they talked about an awakening, a political awakening of people to rise up against dictators, so the way that it was, it was called was called the Arab Spring. That spring, Aviv, is a byword for renewal, a byword for life coming back into the world. And when we started our year, the other beginning of the year, the other Rosh Hashanah, of Tishrei, of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, where we started to watch the leaves wither and die, and we started to watch the world fold in upon itself, and life retreated, and the sun retreated, and the days became shorter. Now, and we just passed the uh, vernal equinox, so we start to see our days become longer. It starts to become light when you leave work. It starts to become a little bit greener outside, and maybe there's one more time that we can experience a park, and it's not going to be oppressively cold. And again, those crocuses outside in my front yard remind us that this is not just the redemption for the Jewish people, but the time of Pesach is a redemption for the entire world. So that's what Rav Kook meant, I think, when he had embroidered on his matzah cover that the exodus of the Jewish people from Israel, Tisha'er La'ad, it's always going to be the Aviv Shaha'olam Kulo, the springtime of the entire world. And we'll return to Rav Kook um, shortly, but this is, I think, the, the mantra that we're going to hold on to when we talk about the meaning of Pesach as time of redemption. And uh, I want to just pause and say that uh, I don't, I don't mean for this to not be interactive. If you have anything to add or anything to share, please, of course, use the chat uh, or you could even use the raise hand function. And, and um, it's my joy to, to engage in dialogue and to be able to, uh, to talk out these ideas, to make sure they're making sense also. And, um, and, and Sharon, I appreciate you so much. It's always good just to have one person that I'm, I, right now this whole share is for you. So, uh, so I appreciate it. Everybody else's name's on the screen. And, uh, and I recognize it's hard sometimes on Zoom. So I like being on person, but uh, you're brave and I appreciate you very, very much. So let's start off with a, uh, a core text, an Ur text, if you will, from a Mishnah Psachim. This comes from the 10th chapter of Mesechah Psachim. Tractate Psachim is, of course, the tractate that deals mostly with the laws of Pesach. To be sure, the majority of the tractate actually deals with the laws of the Paschal sacrifice and not with Pesach as we experience it nowadays. There's one aspect of it, that's this 10th barak that deals with Pesach as we're familiar with it. The carbon itself, uh, the sacrifice itself is something uh, uh, that uh, may return, may it be something that comes uh, back soon, but the sacrifice is not something that we experience um, right now. But in the Mishnah Psachim, it talks about, it talks about what I like to call the concept of integration. And I'll tell you what the concept of integration means as we frame it with redemption. Let's read it in English. And I broke it down into four parts for us. Rabbi Gamliel used to say, anybody who doesn't say these three things on Pesach has not fulfilled their obligation. And they are Pesach, Matzah, and Marah. And the reason I'm pointing is because at our Seder and in many Haggadot, you will find that the, the, the stage notes, the script notes for the Haggadah will say that you should point to these things on your Seder plate. Pesach, the shank bone, the remembrance for the Pesach, matzah, the matzah that's there on the table, and the mar, by gesturing to them, by pointing to them, recognizing that these are the three core elements of any seder, the three core elements of the holiday of Pesach in its entirety. 
Pesach. What does Pesach mean? On account that the divine passed over the dwellings of our ancestors in Egypt. The Karban Pesach, the name Pesach itself, is Passover. God had mercy on the Jewish people and passed over our houses simply because we marked them as Jewish homes with the blood daubed on the lintel and on the doorposts and the fact that we took the gods of Egypt in service of our God. Matzah, we point to the matzah on account of our redemption from Egypt. It's the bread of redemption. It is the bread of poverty and affliction as well. But it is uh, the kind of symbol, the kind of sign at the Seder that incorporates multiplicity of meanings. And the matzah represents not only the poor man's bread, uh, but also the redemption from Egypt. It was the bread we took on our backs with us. Maror, maror is on account of the fact that the Egyptians embittered our lives. And we have these three elements together, and these three elements make up the three core elements of Pesach. And Rabbi Gamliel goes so far as to say, if you haven't said these things, if you haven't talked them out, then you're not, not, you're not fulfilling your obligations on Pesach. And then the bold, he says, in every generation, one is obligated to envision yourselves as having been redeemed from Egypt. In every generation, we have to see ourselves, and some people render it homiletically. It's not just enough to envision, but you have to reenact. And that's why uh, in certain, I say now, our, our Sephardic brethren, but the truth is, is that these customs have made their ways into many Ashkenazic homes as well, thank God. The notion of, of going around the table and, and walking around, as silly as it might seem, but to say, I'm actually going through the motions, these motions are important in play-acting this memory, this, uh, this, this cultural memory that's been transmitted uh, from generation to generation. And it tells us, the mitzvah is, and you shall tell your child on that day, saying, it is because of this that Hashem did for me when I came forth from Egypt. Me, me, I was taken out of Egypt. You, you were taken out of Egypt. And that's what we try and inculcate to our children. And finally, this realization causes us to, to have a paroxysm of thanks, praise, extol, exalt, adulate, venerate, uh, worship, and give glory to the person, to Hashem, perform miracles for our ancestors, and God willing, for us as well. And then this is, I mean, it's got to be one of the most poetic endings to any Mishnah, but it says, from slavery to freedom, from despair to joy, from mourning to festivities, from darkness to great light, and from oppression to redemption. And the only thing we could say at the end of that is hallelujah. So what I mean by this is that there is an integration over here. There is something that we're trying to do. I'll stop the share screen for a second. I didn't see Tzvi and Paul also and Dina. Thanks for being on the screen also. I'm sorry, I didn't see you. Um, I appreciate you guys. I appreciate everybody here. These, th what do I mean by integration? We have over here a story in this Mishnah. What Rabbi Gamliel is telling us is that these three core elements make up the key of what it means to be redeemed on Pesach. So much so that when you finish going through them, when you finish speaking them out, you cannot but help to explode in joy, explode in praise of God. So I like to think, and this is maybe my own take, uh, so take it or leave it, and I think it's original, but I was telling my students this week when we were working through the Haggadah is that we have this rather strange part of the Haggadah where we have the great Hillel, the great elder Hillel tells us that this is what he used to do in the times that the Beis HaMikdash Hayakayim, when the Beis HaMikdash, when the temple was still standing. He used to take Pesach, Matzah, and Marah, and he would wrap them. Might be a proof that Matzah, once upon a time, used to be soft, right? He would wrap them together and have them in a sandwich. Of course, I'm talking about Korach. 
And what I thought and what I said to my students in the sixth grade, and, you know, you'd be shocked at what students understand and integrate. You know, you think you could only speak about these concepts to people who are older, but kids get this immediately. Right? The notion is, is that what Hillel is telling us, it's more than just a sandwich. It's about the concept of integration. In psychology, especially the psychology of, of, of treating people with post-traumatic stress syndrome, is that there needs to be an integration of trauma. Oftentimes, and the truth be told is that there are statements said that, ev- that, that it is a very fact of life that all, all of us will experience trauma, some, some big, God forbid, and, and most of us hopefully small traumas of everyday life. But what happens when trauma is unresolved, what happens when trauma is left as it is, is that one cannot leave that trauma. You stay stuck in it. Triggers, you know, for me, I, I tell people all the time, um, my wife knows this very well. I sleep, uh, I need to sleep with lights on. It's just a thing. I need to sleep with lights on. I need to have not just a nightlight. I need to have some sort of a light on in the house somewhere to help me out. And, and it took me a while and, and a lot of talking with people to realize that that was a response to spending many nights in pitch darkness in the army at a, at a mutsav, at some, at some pillbox somewhere. And just, you know, assuming that if somebody was going to be coming to get me, they, you know, I'd be dead before I knew it. And uh, we had sh- been shown videos in our training of terrible attacks on soldiers that were standing in guard duty. And, and I realized late, it took me about 10 years to realize this, that was me having a traumatic response to something. My traumatic response to being left in the dark, standing and essentially waiting uh, for somebody else to fire the first shot results in me having to keep my lights on when I'm going to sleep nowadays. How, what does that have to do with Korach? Korach says we had a trauma. The trauma is the maror, the, the bitterness of an entire nation enslaved, left in Mitzrayim. And, 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 and we're not telling a children's story here, right? We're talking about infanticide, right? We're talking about, about labor that was designed to be humiliating, labor that was designed to be avodas perach, the definition, the Ramba Maimonides tells us that the definition of avodas perach, the backbreaking labor of the Jewish people in Egypt, was that it was labor that had no purpose or meaning. That was labor that was, was designed to shatter and to break the spirit. It's nice. We could say, you know, work, work, work every day and every night and dig your hammers deep. But it was, it was horrific. It was horrific for the Jewish people. And as we know, anybody that has Holocaust survivors in their family or anybody that is a Holocaust survivor knows that there is such a concept of intergenerational trauma. That the suffering and pain of the ancestors gets passed down through generations. It's why people hide uh, their money in certain places, hide their money rather than entrust it to banks. It's why, it's why you know, you always have uh, the babka in the kitchen and you make sure the grandchildren are eating well because who knows? Who knows what might happen next? That's maror. And then we have the matzah. The matzah has, has, is this encompassing thing that has these dualities of meaning. It's poor man's bread, but it's also the bread of redemption, the bread of faith. And we take in that matzah, the marah, and also the sacrificial, the, 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 the carbon pesach, the sacrifice that signaled our redemption, that signaled that it was all finally over. If we left these things separate, if we left pesach, matzah, and marah unspoken, if we left them unsaid, if we left them without integration in a korach, without being put together, we wouldn't be integrating the trauma, the national trauma of Yitziat Mitzrayim, of the exodus and the slavery. They wouldn't be linked together. What Rabbi Gamliel is telling us and what Hillel, I think, is telling us with the Korach is something profound. Is that redemption means that it's not just a one-time thing, but it's something that needs to be constantly processed and constantly thought over and mulled over in relation to the suffering that, necess- that necessitated that redemption. 
That I think is the essence of this Mishnah, is the essence of what Rabbi Gamliel is telling us about over here. The integration, the integration of, of suffering and pain and trauma and bringing that from despair to joy, from mourning to festive, to, from darkness to a great light and from oppression to redemption. And on that we could say hallelujah. Now that redemption doesn't have to be something that is so profound and great, and massive on this big national scale of hundreds of thousands of people, a nation leaving from within a nation. It doesn't have to be that. In fact, there's a much more, I'm going to pronounce this word wrong, but I think a banal, a banal kind of redemption. I've heard people say banal, which I like more than banal, but I think it's banal. In everyday life, we also seek redemptions. There is a wonderful Haggadah, a really amazing Haggadah. I think my brother introduced it to me. It's, uh, it's, it's produced by Mark Elaine Wachnin. Uh, Mark Elaine Wachnin is this individual over here. He is still alive. He is a French rabbi and continental philosopher. He's one of the great exponents of the philosophy of Emmanuel Levinas. Um, this is his Haggadah with these beautiful, beautiful um, artworks that are inside of it. I don't know if it's really available anymore, if it's still in print. I happen to have a copy if anybody wants to see it um, live. But they have, they have in here insights that are really profound and beautiful illustrations as well. Let's read what, what Wachnin has to say about everyday redemption. And I think if the concept of an exodus from Egypt and an entire nation might be something that is maybe a little bit more difficult to conceptualize, this certainly can be. He says the Haggadah is the story of the exodus from Egypt, not only from a physical Egypt, but also, and above all, from the Egypt of banality or banality of the day-to-day, where things lose their taste and meaning in their repetitions. In this way, the Haggadah explores the organized and organizing forces that work toward uniformity in a given society, uniformity of thought, of feeling, and of being, of which the banal is the ultimate expression. Let's pause right here to digest what he's saying over here. Mitzrayim, in Hasidic thought, is associated with the word meitzarim, it means the narrow places. We say, for example, in Tehilim, We call out to God, says, from the narrow places, God, please save us and answer us in the wide open expanses. All of us experience this kind of constriction in everyday life. I got angry tonight at my kids, right? That is because of the constrictions of everyday life. I'm not proud of it at all, but I recognize it as part of Mitzrayim, of everyday life. If I didn't have to deal with certain things, if I didn't have certain pressures, if I didn't have lachatzenu that is mentioned in the Haggadah, God saw the pressures of the Jewish people. If I didn't have these, this narrowness, this constriction, I probably wouldn't have reacted that way. And it sometimes feels quite repetitive that all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy every single day that we experience these pressures, we experience this constriction, the ever-tightening, the ever-tightening noose around us and around our psyches of everyday life, that the banal expression of everyday life, sometimes we forget that we need to be extricated from that. Now, some people, they might have a meditation practice that allows them to focus and to depart from that world. Some people might do this in unhealthy ways. They might turn to, to drugs, to alcohol, to, to negative experiences, to experience some sort of a break from that day-to-day where things lose their taste and meaning in their repetitions. And even, to be sure, Jewish life can have this kind of expression as well. I tell my students, we say the same words every day in tefillah, but if you don't add new meaning to those words every day, if you don't look at 
God, you bestow wisdom upon man, the same words that we say in every Shemona Esri, in every Amidah. And you don't think, today I have a test, and today I'm really concentrating on these words. Today these words are different. So then there's going to be a problem. You're going to descend into repetition, what we call mitzvah san Hashem right? Just doing things and serving God through rote and repetition, which is ultimately an empty service of God. Maybe you're checking off boxes, but you're not experiencing the transcendence that Judaism and its mitzvahs are supposed to, are supposed to give to us, to bestow upon us. Waknin says that the Haggadah and Pesach jar us out of this. From the most basic thing of clearing our houses of, of almost all food and uh, maybe the shopping bills that we get sometimes might jar us out of that as well. But this is something that is meant to, to shake us awake and to say, okay, this routine, this repetition, you need to be redeemed from that. That is Meitzarim, that is narrow places. He says the essential problem of the banal is the disappearance of the imaginary and of the dream. And because of that, the disappearance of projection towards somewhere else, towards another scene of projection, there's the very movement of a person's humanity. What he means is, is that if we, don't, if we don't stop, if we don't pause this repetitive aspect of everyday life, so we will get stuck we will get constricted, the walls will close in, and we will not be able to extricate ourselves from that predicament. We'll find ourselves at the end of hopefully a long, happy, and healthy life and saying, well, that, that happened, that passed by. We'll find ourselves after many, many years of doing the same mitzvot, of going through the same things, of going to shul for the same Rosh Hashanah, of sitting at the Seder at the same time again, and these things will have lost their taste. Matzah again, and, and we keep on going back to matzah, Matzah is, is, is a profound symbol of this because it's bread. It is, it is the most, not bread, it is the most elemental kind of food. It has really no taste. Now, if you're a connoisseur like uh, I pretend I am, I, I maybe could tell the difference between Schatzer matzahs and uh, between Borough Park matzahs and Pupa matzahs, which, you know, you'll hear people say these are the best matzahs, but really it's a tabula rasa. It's a blank slate. We're, we're meant to, to spark not only our taste buds to experience something anew, but also our imaginations. And that's why the night of Pesach and Haggadah is all about imagining ourselves as if we were experiencing that redemption as well. Remembering what it was like to have dreams. You know, my, my two-year-old has dreams of being a, a, a firefighter. I don't know if he'll be a firefighter. It's a great thing to be. But, you know, at a certain point as we get older, we watch as doors close to us. And our dreams and our hopes became constricted. Let those options, the optionality of, of, of youth and of life get closed off. What I think the Haggadah and Pesach communicate to us is that we can redeem ourselves from that, that at any stage in life. We can redeem ourselves from this notion that these doors have been closed off to us at any point. And what better time to start doing that than in Chagahula, the time of redemption. He says, to be is not merely to be, but to be able to be differently. We have to imagine ourselves as something different. We have to imagine ourselves now, that we're leaving Egypt now. I see that we're taking so much time unpacking these, so I want to move on a little bit. And I want to talk about a third kind of redemption. And I think that the first two kinds of redemptions are, are lacking. They're missing something if they don't take into account the, the responsibility on all Jews of social redemption. And I'll tell you what I mean by social redemption. It means that taking seriously this notion that Pesach is not just the time of redemption for us, but like Rav Kook said, kol ha'olam kulo, for the entire world. And I don't mean just the natural world, and I don't just mean Jewish people, and I don't just mean people in our community, but I mean the entire world, really. And I, there's a quote on top over here from, uh, from Rousseau in The Social Contract. He says, man is born free, and yet everywhere he's in chains. One thinks himself the master of others and still remains a greater slave than they. Right? We, we look at society, 
and we look at the things that do shackle us, the things that do hold us down, and we can feel as free as we want, but without recognizing the systems of oppression, the systems of inequality that shackle society and prevent society from reaching its full potential. So there's something lacking from our own personal redemption. Uh, rabbi Dr. David de Sola Poole was the longtime rabbi of the Spanish-Portuguese synagogue. You could see I put in the watermark over here. That is the Spanish-Portuguese synagogue. I have, a, I'll stop share for a second. I'll tell everybody I have a special relationship with the Spanish-Portuguese synagogue when I was the principal at uh, SAR High School. Um, so I got a call from uh, my friend, Ms. Rezi Chechik, as we were planning to reopen school um, for the year after Zoom school, the year, second year of the pandemic, if you will. She said, we have a problem. I said, what's the problem? She said, well, due to social distance, we don't have this issue of bicultural with our sprawling, you know, 16 acres, I don't know how many acres our campuses. But when you're in essentially what's a couple of brownstones uh, building in New York City on the Upper West Side, space is a real uh, constriction of a different kind. Space is a real consideration. And she said, we have to find a solution. We need to move the seventh and eighth graders somewhere else so that we could socially distance probably, poss uh, uh, possibly. And uh, one of the people that uh, reached out to us was the Spanish-Portuguese synagogue, uh, that gorgeous, stunning building. I don't know if anybody here has ever been inside it. A beautiful, beautiful place. And they offered us their space. Now, mind you, there were no smart boards. There was no gym. There was barely Wi-Fi. We had to make sure that the kids didn't go into certain rooms because they were essentially museums because it's one of the oldest synagogues in New York and in the entire United States. It's a historic landmark building. Um, but we made it work. We made it work. So, uh, you know, I'm always, I'm ever grateful to the Spanish-Portuguese synagogue for affording us that space to be able to, uh, to graduate a class of eighth graders and to give seventh graders a year of school. But uh, Spanish-Portuguese synagogue, which is a venerated, a venerable American Jewish institution. Uh, so Rabbi David de Solopool uh, was responsible for their Sidur, he translated the Sidur, and many other books, and he also uh, authored a Spanish-Portuguese Haggadah. And it's a, you could see it on the Spanish-Portuguese website, and it is an amazing document of what the socially responsible American Judaism looked like. I mean, um, when I say American Judaism, one of the earliest rabbis of the Spanish-Portuguese synagogue, uh, Samson Simpson, uh, was, the, was the Hebrew orator at, um, at Columbia University. All Ivy League universities used to have a Hebrew oration. And he was the Hebrew orator at Columbia University commencement exercises for a number of years. Um, and uh, Spanish-Portuguese synagogue has a deep, uh, deep relationship with what it means to be American. And I think this is what social redemption means. He says, the exodus is now for us. We who enjoy freedom and dignity in this country, but not everyone in this land enjoys the blessings of freedom and dignity. Not all enjoy the prosperity and abundance which seem to surround us. One needn't look very far to find someone who is homeless, someone who lacks adequate medical care, someone who seeks employment to support a family. This is not the promised land for thousands upon thousands for whom it should be just that. And by the way, when I say promised land, if you study the history of early American, uh, American colonialism, uh, the first seal that was suggested, I believe, by Benjamin Franklin, the first seal for the United States was supposed to be an image of the Exodus. The founding fathers of this country saw themselves as new Hebrews, saw themselves as new Israelites, people that were fleeing a murderous and despotic and um, dictator in the king, in the monarchy, and trying to start anew here. In fact, even before uh, the founding of this country, 
Early colonies adopted biblical sets of laws, biblical codes of laws. I believe that the Massachusetts Bay Colony uh, used the Aserta Dibrod, used the Ten Commandments as the foundation of the colony laws. Very fascinating history of how the Exodus ties into. You'd have to really speak to the uh, to the rabbi of the Spanish Portuguese synagogue, to uh, Rabbi Meir Salavechik, who that's his forte. That's what he talks about. But he says many are enslaved not by physical bonds or even economic bonds, but by bonds of memory and emotion. Slavery comes in many forms and to these forms of enslavement. The message of Passover speaks loudly as well. Redemption is the promise for all people. How much of a disservice do we do to the power of our holidays, to narrow them in scope to just us, to just our mitzvot, and not understand that they are a message and they are a charge for the way that we have to serve as a light unto the nations and people that speak of redemption for all people, for all people at this time. And that ties in very beautifully, I think. I'll stop sharing for one more moment. Uh, this ties in very beautifully to a concept, the core concept that Maimonides, that the Rambam speaks about when he talks about how it is that we have a Yom Tov Seuda. When we get to Shulchan Arach or when we're sitting in our sukkah, the Rambam in Hilchas Yom Tov, in a very famous line, tells us that somebody that sits at a table that's filled with all goodness, you know, first cup brisket, you know, the finest wines, the best simis possible, and, you know, $40 a pound shmura matzah, somebody that sits at a table with all these things and hasn't invited in or hasn't shared their meal together with the destitute and with the poor and with the disadvantaged, so the Rambam uses harsh language on them. He says, This isn't a joy of Yantav, but this is just the joy of their bellies. They're not sharing in this with other people. And to be sure, we start off our Seder. We start off our Seder with an invitation. An invitation for, for those who don't have a place to go, for those who don't have a place to eat. We start off our Yantav by inviting them and telling them to come and to join in our Seder together with us to join in the Seder with us and to say, This is the bread of affliction that our ancestors ate in Egypt. Anybody that's hungry, anybody that needs should come in and eat. One of my students said when we were talking about this, one of the students said to me, Rabbi Rosenfeld, isn't it weird that we're only inviting in these people by the third or fourth stage in the Seder? We've already done Kaddish, Orchads, Karpas, and Yachatz. And now we're doing Magid and now we're inviting them in. They've already missed a cup of wine. And they said to me, as only a middle schooler can tell us, and I see there's a comment in the chat, I'll get to that in a moment. They, they said, you know, imagine that you're sitting at a table at lunch and all your friends are sitting there and then when they finally see you, they say, oh, come. And you know that they arranged to sit at that table together beforehand. You don't want to sit there. You don't really feel like a guest. So what are we doing inviting them in after the Seder has already started? So another student came and said something brilliant. And, and I'm, I'm sharing it with you for the first time. I told them, what you say to me, I'm writing down in my own BCDS. This was a BCDS, not a BCHA Haggadah. But in this Haggadah, where we took notes on every single page of it, and I took down my students' notes also, I think you could probably see the question, right? So there's a couple questions over there for my students that I'm going to say over at my save there. So another student responded brilliantly. She said, Every day of the year, we have a mitzvah, we have a commandment of achnasad orchim, of welcoming in guests. At the Seder, we have a special aspect of this, of halach of inviting people in to experience magid, not the whole Seder, magid together with us. The part where we talk 
about ourselves experiencing poverty, ourselves experiencing destitution, ourselves experiencing the depravities of, of, of enslavement and suffering and what it meant to not know where your next meal is coming from. So it's at this time we can most identify with the predicament of those people. And it's for this time, those of us who might have a hard time inviting in somebody who's disheveled and, and might not have an invitation at the table and saying, you come and you experience this with us because otherwise their words are lacking meaning. That's what it means to see Pesach in an expansive way, to see it for the entire world. I thought it was a, a gorgeous, beautiful response. Somebody said in the chat, and I'll just address this now before we move on. I think that the concept of light unto the nation, social responsibility, is one that we strive to achieve. But then everybody says, oh. so look, this is a tough question, right? Somebody, somebody looks at the way, it's a really tough question, right? There are, in, in Israel, I mean, you don't have to even look at, uh, you don't even have to look at, at across the political divide to, uh, to the Palestinian people necessarily. That's a hard thing. I don't know if, I could, if I'm really equipped to deal with that. If you look at it in Israeli society, in American society, there are Holocaust. I get an appeal from the UJA every year and talks about Holocaust survivors that are still amongst us, that still don't have a place to eat, that still don't have food. JFS, they sent out their, uh, we have a box at Bicultural, but there's people that, uh, that, lack, that lack provisions, that lack enough for their seder. What kind of a feeling do we have when we put food and we put our extras into that box and we know that somebody is not going to have this kind of a consciousness, this kind of a consciousness is something that's expansive. Can't speak for all Jewish people, but I think, I think at least for myself, at, at the very least being mindful of this elevates our seder, elevates our experience of Passover to something a little bit more, a little bit more profound. I see that we're running out of time. And I guess when I said two themes, maybe I only went one theme. And I'll give you maybe a preview for next year. We'll talk about the second theme. But I want to talk about how this redemption is done. How is this redemption, right? So we've talked about what it means. How do we do it? And to turn to how we do it, I turn to one of my favorite Jewish thinkers, to Rabbi Tzadok Kokoyin of Lublin. And this is, uh, I heard Rabbi Cohen speak about this uh, on Shabbos a few weeks ago. This is Rabbi Tzadok of Lublin, just to give you a background, a little bit of who we're talking about. He died in 1901. Rabbi Tzadok was a, was a student. He was a student of the Ishbitzer, of the Me'ashilach. Me'ashilach was a unique, profound, powerful Hasidic thinker, dealt with really difficult concepts of determinism, antinomianism, um, the religious mindset of the believer who's experiencing doubt. Uh, the Ishbitzer was an amazing figure. Tzadok HaKohen was a classic, a classic uh, Talmudic genius and prodigy, but discovered Hasidus through the Ishbitzer. And his thought is some of the most exciting, profound, and amazing Torah thought that you can, that you can really uh, encounter. It's life-changing stuff. So Tzadok writes in Sitka Satzadik in his magnum opus, the place where his... The place where his um, where I think his work is, the place where his work, I think, is, is most, his, his thought is most readily on display. It's, it's aphoristic. You know, it's, it's made up of, of kataim, of different passages. And here's the very first passage in the Sefer. And I guess we'll end with this. Uh, maybe I'll give you a little preview for next year. I said two themes. We only uh, got to do one. I, think that the, I hope that that's okay. He writes in Sitka Satsadik, he says, redemption means work. It's not enough just to feel it, but we could actually achieve it. He says, and I'm going to read the Hebrew in full. 
The very beginning of a person's entry into the service of God needs to be in haste. Now, chipazon, by the way, this word is the way that we're described. Our ancestors left Mitzrayim in haste. There's no time to wait. You got to move. You got to get on the road. And he says, And that very first Pesach that we're, that we're harking back to on Seder night, the, the Pesach, the carbon was eaten hastily. We left hastily. The matzah was baked hastily. But that's different, however, from Pesach Dorot, from Pesach for subsequent generations. Pesach in subsequent generations is different. Why? The first step of a person who's stuck, who's entrenched with their desire, who's a slave to their desire, who's a slave to their instincts, a slave to their passions, slave to their natural default setting, as uh, David Foster Wallace calls it, right? Somebody that finds himself stuck in that, in those constricted, narrow places. So the first move is not really to contemplate too much, not really to deliberate too much, not really to be very slow with it, but you have to run and disconnect yourself from it in one fell slew, cold turkey. And then afterwards, tzarich lishmar harega, you have to hold on to that moment, you have to keep that precious moment. You take that moment of inspiration, you say to yourselves, I'm not going to smoke anymore. I'm just not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to eat that junk food anymore. I'm, I'm going to exercise. I'm not going to be sedentary anymore. That's just in the physical realm. I'm not going to resort to anger so easily. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to be so lazy. I'm not going to hit that couch and turn on that screen, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to write that book that I meant to write. I'm going to call that person I meant to call. I'm not going to, I'm not going to fight with that person that I always fought with. I'm going to change that relationship. That moment of inspiration, whether it was a talk or something we saw or a scare, something, whatever it was, to hold on to that moment, right? we talk about shmura matzah, we have to protect that matzah, we have to protect that moment, we can't let that moment leaven. We can't let that moment start to rise and become something else, something different and filled with hot air entirely, but we have to hold on to that moment so that it lasts. To constantly go back to that, to say, oh, this is why I'm doing this. This is what I'm doing this for. Ulai yuchal, he says. Rav Tzadok says, maybe, maybe you'll be able to, to break those shackles. Charkach, and afterwards, shuv yeilich b'metinus v'la'at g'din Pesach dorot. Afterwards, then you can focus on what it means to go slowly, to walk. The Jewish people left Egypt in one night. It took them 49 more days to get to, the Har, to, get to Har Sinai. Each stage, it's how we experience Pesach, and then afterwards, Svirata Omer. Counting the Omer day by day, step by step, little by little piece by piece, in order to be able to accomplish something. So Pesach Mitzrayim, if you look at the chart that I made, these two spiritual models, there's inspiration, you disconnect from the past, it's a seishura, it's a break, it's alacrity and it's haste, and that allows us to approach a Pesach Doros, Pesach for generations, that's work of perspiration, of connecting ourselves constantly to that initial moment. It's deliberate and it's slow. And if you accomplish that, if you do that properly, so then maybe you'll be able to experience a true redemption. You'll be able to experience both the personal redemption, a redemption that we expect for our people, a redemption that we expect for our country, for the world, 
right? It's hard to imagine what that redemption might look like with so much strife and discord and chaos all around us. But I, you have to believe it. You have to look at Pesach. You have to take that moment of Pesach. Maybe Pesach leaves us with that taste in our mouths, taste of matzah that says this, this tabula rasa, this blank slate could be anything. We have no idea what lies behind that door. We have no idea what that redemption might look like. Prophet Micha tells us, you know, he says that the Geula Asida, that is going to be a Geula, the redemption, in the end, the final redemption will look like the first redemption. But the truth is, is that there's no, no eye has seen this. We can't fathom what it is. So I hope to be able to experience that unfathomable moment of redemption, personal, national, and worldwide together with you. Until then, I could wish you uh, a beautiful, wonderful Pesach, a Pesach that's filled with, with joy, uh, whether you're going to be with family, whether you're going to be with friends, whether if, if you're going to be alone, you better reach out to a rabbi now and make sure that you're not. You better reach out to friends now and make sure that you're not. I'm happy to help. Um, I'm, not a rab- I'm not a shul rabbi in this community, but uh, care very much that people should be together and uh, to experience together with community. And uh, as a community, by taking these messages of Pesach, these signs and symbols together with us, we'll be able to experience hopefully a true redemption. I want to thank Paul and Dean again